Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast by People Management. My name is Emily Burt and I am here once again to explore all you need to know about this month in HR, including what's the big deal with apprenticeships? Our expert panel take the beleaguered training system to task. Also on the show. Then I look at your DM boots that have got flowers on them and it says to me, yeah, she doesn't necessarily want to be a centre of attention, but she doesn't want to get overlooked either. Find out why personal branding should be at the core of every great HR personality. And our HR guru, Tim Pointer, has some team-building wisdom to offer in Tim's Pointers. The idea of apprenticeships is not a new one, a technical route into the workplace that pays while you're learning on the job. But following a government reform of the system in 2017, which they hoped would give way to 3 million new starts by 2020, they have become something of a mixed bag. Well, here to discuss why everyone is finding it such a challenge is Nick Linford, the editor of FE Week magazine, and Lady Cobham, the Director General of the 5% Club, a movement of employers and members that support earn and learn training opportunities. Welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for coming today. To start, do you think the apprenticeship levy is broadly doing what it's set out to do? Um, Nick, would it be all right if I start with you? Yeah, sure. I think broadly speaking it is. Um, doing what it's meant to do. The driver behind it is to stimulate demand from employers and new employers. Um, That's still to come through, but I think we are seeing a lot of employers coming board, particularly in the public sector, who didn't really consider apprenticeships to be a thing for them, and they're being pushed very hard with government targets in addition to the spending they're making. So if you listen to the likes of the NHS, they're saying, well, look, we're putting, say, £600 into this pot because of the tax, the levy. We need to spend it. It's NHS money, and it should be spent on training NHS employees, existing and new ones. So in that sense, I think its intention was clear, and I think the numbers will increase. But in terms of is it doing what it's meant to be doing, I think broadly speaking, I would say it is. Penny, what do you think? I think... It has all the right intentions, but I think we need to be able to help to speed things up because the take-up has been too slow, and that's due to not one big-ticket item, but a range of issues from the slowness of getting the new standards approved to the relationship between suppliers, trainers and employers to ensure that actually what they are offering is what employers want to buy and it is training people for jobs of the future and not just jobs for today. In a best case scenario, what should a great apprenticeship achieve for both the individual and for a business, do you think? Well, I think the government have been very clear um, how the apprenticeship differs from all the many other training programmes out there. In fact, so clear they've written it into legislation. So Mm. the term apprenticeship is now written into law, which means that there is a definition of that type of training. So for example, it means you have to be employed. It means you have to have a minimum amount of training known as off the job. That's written into the legislation as well. And it means, I think, particularly that you are gaining new skills, knowledge and behaviours, including things like confidence in the workplace, something that Ofsted, the inspectorate, is very keen on looking at. Those are new behaviours that you don't already have. And I think a lot of criticism in the past under the same brand of apprenticeship, the same name, was that there were individuals on the scheme for whom it was a tick box exercise, whether they knew they were on apprenticeship or not, and they were actually just having their existing knowledge, skills and behaviours assessed. I think very much with the reform programme, with the new standards, with the new definition, which then follows through to the, to the rules on who can and who cannot receive public money for this training, um, I think um, they are a new breed now, and it will take time, but I think what makes them, for me, really stand out is this minimum time off the job, equivalent to a day a week, 
and it's in contract time. Certainly, when I've written about the apprenticeship levy, that that off-the-job training has been a really big stumbling block for employers who feel that they can't afford to take someone who is employed in their workplace out of that out of that workplace for one day a week, the equivalent of that. So I've seen quite a lot of noise being made about that twenty percent minimum requirement. Um, and you know, we do know that since the introduction of the levy, um, we have seen starts slow down. We've talked about this uh, previously, uh, just over a quarter of a million starts between uh, August 2017 and March 2018. That's uh, compared with 360, uh, more than 362,000 in the previous year. So, you know, a fall of almost a third in starts. Now, there are complicated reasons for this, but uh, what do you think are have been the biggest challenges in introducing this new system. Yeah, well, I mean, if you assume that uh, all of the the companies receiving public money to deliver training are following the rules, then as of May last year, when the levy was introduced, the the -the off-the-job rule was applied. And so all of those tick-box apprenticeships would not have been able to have taken place. So I think there's a serious argument to suggest that a lot of the provision that was taking place, as assessed by Ofsted and through other uh, research projects, um, aren't taking place. So I do think there is a serious issue to look at in terms of is it necessarily a bad thing Mm. if we are sort of resetting the clock on a quality apprenticeship and hopefully now as more standards come on stream as more employers start to realize that they're going to lose their levy funding we start to see that to rise and and the minister here the skills minister is very clear she thinks probably september the one that's just gone should be when we start seeing some big uptakes very interesting to see the latest stats when they come out in january i would like to raise the point though if that's okay about companies not using their levy pot yes for example because of off the look job i don't necessarily think that's a bad thing in fact it could be a good thing um because it's very clear that the treasury got back one and a half billion pounds with the introduction of the levy and the levy replaces that so this isn't a new scheme it replaces a, a previous scheme that the treasury was paying for and the only way that the levy can be used for small employers for example is if a number of large employers say to themselves do you know what i don't need to spend all this money on an apprenticeship yeah so i think if there are another employer saying actually it's too expensive for me to deliver a significant amount of training to my employees then apprenticeship isn't for them and as you would expect that money is then made available through the levy after 24 months to other companies to use so it's kind of built into the system so every time at fe week when i receive a press release from a company saying oh we're not using it it's just a tax my reaction to that isn't to run a story about it not mm. being used it's to say hold on a minute it's probably not for you then and it makes it available for other employees that want to use it i agree entirely about quality so many people raise this subject with me and i think what the levy has done is to ensure that you only get levy money if you are offering a quality training. I think that there are issues, for example, around travelling. If you're offering a more sophisticated, higher apprenticeship, often it can be quite difficult to find a training supplier near where your business is. The other is to have a quality experience. If you're with, for example, a construction company, then they don't just want to send you to one site, say an HS2 site or a Crossrail site. They would like to send you to different ones so you get a range of different experiences when you're actually with the company. The answer is that probably if we could in the review that's been announced by Philip Hammond recently, 
look at some aspects of the levy, which would be de minimis, but just to make it a little bit more flexible. The answer I suggest to the former problem, where colleges are often quite spread out geographically, Mm. is if more employers could club together and know other people are seeking training like they are, we could actually make sure that colleges and similar places can offer the sort of training. It's a win-win. Both sides win. Nick, you talked about um, companies writing off the levy as a tax. We know that this has happened since the introduction of the levy. Something else that we've also seen is a lot of organisations who are using their levy funds to upskill their existing employees by offering things like business MBAs or higher level apprenticeships, um, transferring graduates onto level seven um, apprenticeship schemes. Now, One of the key things the government said when they introduced the levy was that they wanted to bring people from more diverse social backgrounds into education. So bring more socially disadvantaged young people in. They wanted to see more um, 16 to 24 year olds starting. That was kind of a core aim. So does it defeat the point if organisations are upskilling existing staff rather than focusing on new hires? Or should it not really matter how the funds are being spent as long as they're being invested in that quality training? I think to ex- a great extent it depends on your own personal view. There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer, but I'm certainly willingly giving you my view on this. Um, it's something that I've raised with all five ministers that we've had now in sk- for skills since the uh, reforms were <laughs> first looked at back in 2011. Um, and it's the, the key to all of this is around, does employer-led mean they get to decide? Right. And I think that the government initially was selling this concept of employer-led to employers and the levy to employers that it was giving them purchasing power and they would decide because um, that was you know, giving them the skin in the game. The reality is it's not the employer's money. Mm. Um, the minister, the current one, Anne Milton, has made that very clear in interviews with me. It's not their money, but they get first use of it and it's ring fenced specifically for apprenticeships. And maybe we'll come back to the flexibility point. So the question then is, if it's public money, should it be spent on people doing MBAs that already have degrees? And I'm very clear on that. Absolutely not. It Mm. should not be spent in that way. And of course, it's a zero sum game in economic terms, which means if you spend £27,000 on a degree in management, that's £27,000 not available to spend on a 16 to 18 year old getting on the first rung of of that ladder in uh, education and skills. So no, I don't think it's appropriate. um, And I'm very confident the government will start clamping down. We're already seeing quite significant issues around whether they're going to continue funding them at that level. Um, and uh, with the numbers that are coming through our analysis, more than half of everything at level four and above has got the word management in the title at the moment. Um, it's not sustainable, quite clearly. Um, so, yeah, there is a, a recalibration, I think, that needs to go on and ensure that the levy money is spent where it's no- most needed. Uh, Penny, would you like to come in on this talk? I am of a slightly different view. I think all of the above is actually what's needed. We have large numbers of jobs that are disappearing as we're all sitting here or listening to this with AI coming in. And I would quote people like Highways England, where they have a very large number of apprenticeships on offer. But in addition, they are actually proactively going around their workforce and going to people who've been doing the same job, potentially a job that's about to 
be lost because it won't be needed anymore and suggesting not they go and do an MBA, but they retrain or upskill so that they are fit for purpose to stay with Highways England or whomsoever. Can you say that apprenticeships shouldn't just be for the young, but if they, if you are extending them to older people, is there a way to do that that doesn't mean it's kind of people at the very tops of organisations who are already really highly skilled just being given an extra boost? Well, I mean, I'll be unpopular with my readers in saying this, but it's a line I've held and I still believe. I think they should be just for the young. And I think we need to recognise that apprenticeships are, the, are not the only publicly subsidised training out there. And they're certainly not the only type of training out there in terms of whether the employer should actually be paying for it themselves. Um, I think there is a real risk that the government is getting some great headlines about higher level and degree level apprenticeships. And you can argue, I think, very coherently that they raise aspiration and everyone thinks this apprenticeships now is something that's to, something to aspire to. But if the places are taken by um, those that would be better serviced by the employer paying um, or instead of having gone to university, so it's just a direct replacement for those individuals that were being serviced by the HE sector before, then all we're actually doing is reducing the opportunities for those that were benefiting before the scheme was opened up. So I, I genuinely think that we need to go back to 2007 and have a look at why did we allow apprenticeships to be funded for those over the age of 25? Before then, they weren't. And what is that doing in the longer term for job entry opportunities for young people? Can I pick up on young people entering at the lower levels? And of course, you know, Philip Hammond recently said at the Conservative Party conference um, that there was going to be more funds invested and uh, potentially a wider range of courses on hold. He also said that in the longer term, he was he was planning to sort of work with businesses to review and reform the levy. However hyperbolic that might be. Um, Nick, what would you most like to see if there was going to be reform or anything happen- happening at this stage? Um, nothing. Nothing. Need, yeah, absolutely nothing. I think primarily at the moment we need a bit of stability. Okay. If the Chancellor comes out and says he's going to make changes, employees sit back and wait for changes. It's like anything in the economy. When you're thinking about whether to invest and things are a little bit uncertain, you stop and you wait. And I think the message from the government and the message from the DfE needs to be quite clear. I think the DfE is being very clear, but employers are lobbying hard. They're sticking with what we've got and we're going to see how it plays out over the next couple of years. The only thing the Chancellor actually announced that was new um, was the extension of the transfer of levy funding from a 10% limit to a 25% limit. But in fact, that's not even going to come in until April of 2019. So it's not happening immediately. And I do want to bring up the levy transfer thing in the context of flexibilities. Sure. Because there's a big difference between an employer saying, give me flexibility in the way that I do my apprenticeships with the levy from saying, give me flexibility in what I spend my levy on. In other words, not necessarily using it for apprenticeships. Right. Now, what the government is very clear on is they want to help employers spend the money on apprenticeships. So the CBI and others have been lobbying very hard to to allow employers to share their pot. So there's a policy that's been in place since uh, May of this year, which allows levy employers to use up to 10% of their pot to share with other employees, either through supply chain or a great idea, I think, uh, even through corporate responsibility, looking for local charities to see if they can help to train their staff. What's been fascinating is the take-up has been minimal, very, very little. Employers have asked for it, government have given it. So employers, so the government are now saying, all right, we'll we'll extend it. If you're saying 10% isn't enough, so you're not really showing that much interest, we'll increase it to 25%. And I kind of think it'll be really, really interesting now to see whether the employers do as they say they were going to do, or whether, which is my fear, or whether they're basically saying they'll do something 
So the government say, yep, here you are, and then they don't. I think that the transfer of more funds to your supply chain in particular is certainly not a high priority. And with the 5% Club members, it's not a high priority. That's coming through in the numbers. It's very clear. Yes. But I do think speeding up the approval of new standards, the new apprenticeships, looking at a few issues that would actually genuinely impact on on take-up. And I'd like to just float that I'm talking to anybody who will listen at the moment at a UCAS-style clearinghouse, mm. which has worked for people going to university. It's not a new idea, but we do not have a national one at the moment. And I think that that is something which would not be in Philip Hammond's review, but could make a heck of a difference. So, I mean, the UCAS for apprenticeships idea has been flying around for over five years. It's not got anywhere in government yet, and I'm not surprised. This is not an annualised programme where several hundred thousand people finish at the same time. And I do think we should be careful not to rush to invent a government solution to a market issue. Often the outcome of that is a lot of public money on something that could have been done better by the sector itself. So I'm very cautious about the idea. It, It sounds good in principle, naturally it would, but as someone that's close to this on a day-to-day basis and has looked at some of the suggestions around it. I can see why politically it sounds good, but practically I'm yet to be convinced. One final question for both of you then. You just said that the ball is in the court of employers right now. If you could give them any practical advice to spend their levy funds if they still have them or to positively support apprenticeships in their workplace in a really good way, what would your advice be? I think go and speak to the experts. So I'd pick up your phone to the local college, pick up your phone to the local training provider. The government has paid a lot of money to develop an online website to uh, find uh, training providers and colleges delivering the apprenticeships they're interested in. But uh, the priority is to sit down with someone that you trust who's an expert in this space and say to them, look, how can I get best value? Because it may well be you've got an engineering firm and actually engineering's not, apprenticeships are not where you're going to get the value. It might be in, in the bookkeepers. Uh, it might be in the HR department. Uh, apprenticeships in that space. And, and to pick up the point about the number of new apprenticeships coming in as far as the standards as they're known, so the, the qualifications, technically, uh, you may want to refer to them as. You know, they are coming in more and more. We've got 350 of them, I believe, that are now out there. The range is incredible, which is a separate issue about whether we've already got too many of them, frankly. Um, so the options should be great in all industries at pretty much all levels at the moment and another 200 or so still coming on stream. Lots of employers have been engaged quite heavily in the development of them but have yet to really, I think, many of them fly in terms of the, uh, the, the delivery as opposed to the development. So my advice would be to go and talk to some experts, sit down with them and before you lose the money, before you get grumpy about how complicated everything is, how technical everything is, how much bureaucracy there is in a government programme, all of those things, it's public money. You're going to have to accept it. But how can you get value and how in fact could a college training provider support you and navigate you through that process? Penny, what about you? I agree entirely about talking with the experts The 5% Club is a charity. It's not for profit. It's free for anybody to join. And we have quarterly events where all of our members contribute and share best practice. So we would welcome anyone who would like to learn more. Well, we will leave it there for now. Nick Linford, Lady Cobham, thank you so much for joining us. Now, branding is something we commonly associate with large business rather than people. 
But how au fait should we be with the concept of a personal brand? And just how relevant is this for our careers? Well, this month I met Jennifer Holloway, the author of Personal Branding for Brits, coach, consultant and keynote speaker to talk about it. And I got more than I bargained for when I tasked her with assessing my own personal brand. Here is her response. You have an interesting mix and this is just purely going off visual uh, clues that I get from your clothing, your choice of glasses, your choice of footwear, that sort of thing. You're a very interesting mix. You have quite muted colours for your clothing. You're not wearing any strong makeup. I don't know if you're wearing any makeup, but it's very natural. Your hair colour is very natural. All of that says to me, quite low key, doesn't want to be the centre of attention. However, then I look at your DM boots that have got flowers on them and your glasses, which are quite strong, quite punchy, very much delineate your face. And it says to me, yeah, she doesn't necessarily want to be the centre of attention, but she doesn't want to get overlooked either. And also then just how you talk and you are very confident in your tone of voice. You are very confident, bearing in mind we have met literally three minutes ago. (laughs) Um, You know, you have a very decent handshake. That tells me a lot. Now, this isn't what personal branding is necessarily about in total, but it is very much the importance of your packaging, as I call it, how you look and how you sound and how you act, to give someone that first impression on which you will form their overall impression of your personal brand. Do you know what? I'll take it. (laughs) So, So what exactly is a personal brand and what are the key business benefits then of having one? Let me tell you what a personal brand isn't, because I was reading on LinkedIn recently, someone had asked a question about personal brand, and the majority of the people on there were going, oh, that's just about going on social media and just shouting about yourself. And I was getting a bit annoyed when I was reading it, thinking, but it's not. People assume that personal branding is the you promote yourself part of it. To me, personal branding is you have to know what you're selling before you even go out and sell. So when I tell people at a basic level, what your personal brand has to do is deliver two things at the same time. It needs to let people know what you bring to the table. So if we were taking you, your what would be how many years you've been doing journalism, what qualifications you have, what publications or what media you've worked on, anything you'd put on a CV Mm -hmm. that lets me know I can trust you and I can buy into you at a functional level. But on top of that, the other half of your brand has to be your who. Because you could be the most credible person going, but if on the personality side, I think you're a bit of an idiot, or I don't like you, or I don't trust you, I'm not going to buy into you. So people need to know who brings the what to the table. You know, where do your values stand? What motivates you? What sort of personality are you? And it's that mix. That is a personal brand. Only then when you know those two things, and there's more detail than that, but at a top level then you go and you start to share that with people and if you could name someone really famous who's got what you would consider a really strong personal brand um who would that be richard branson is always held up as the king of the personal brand now do i like his brand slightly different question Mm -hmm. do i admire his ability to use his personality alongside his business acumen to get the buy-in from people who have never even met. People on the street really like Richard Branson. Mm -hmm. They have nothing to do with him as a person. He has had numerous failed businesses and he still has a great reputation as a person in business. So he is very clever at understanding if people can connect with you as a person. In your work, you've worked with a number of high-profile clients who include, you know, Barclays, ASOS, BBC, Microsoft. So do you think this idea of developing a personal branding is something people broadly struggle with? And why is that? 
I think very much culturally in the UK, we struggle with it. So when I wrote personal branding for Brits, Mm -hmm. it isn't just for Brits, but it's essentially it's personal branding for non-American cultures. And that's not a, nothing against America, but in America, you can stand up, say, yeehaw, look how great I am, and get a round of applause. In the UK, if you do that, you'll get laughed off the stage. Mm. So I think that our reticence, and, and the number one thing people say to me is that, oh, I don't want to do this, I could sound arrogant. That's our number one fear. Yeah. But I think that people are coming round to but everyone else is doing this and they're getting ahead and they're getting noticed and I'm starting to get left behind. Mm. So I think that there's a bit more of that. I mean, literally, if I think of people proactively, companies proactively contacting me and say, we want to do something on personal brand as part of our development. And I, I say, you know, that's how did you find me? Oh, we Googled personal brand. We had a meeting or we did a staff survey and people tell us personal brand is what they need. Mm. People didn't know what personal brand was 10 years ago when I started mm. out. So I think it's entering mainstream. So we probably have some listeners who are finding this interesting, but they're also thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? So a lot of my clients are HR people or L&D people in organisations. And a lot of what they tell me is, my real struggle, Jennifer, is I am seen as a technical source of advice in this organisation. Oh, we've got a problem with a member of staff, so I need you to tell me what laws are. But I'm not seen to be adding value and I need to ramp myself up to the next level. That's sort of a a need of a lot of HR people. And your personal brand is there to tell people before they even come to you and just see you as the technical person, for you to be going out there and saying, look, I don't just offer you what, i.e. my technical expertise. I offer you all this other stuff. It's your way of getting yourself out there, getting yourself noticed, getting the buy-in, starting to get some influence and getting people thinking, oh, yeah, I've only ever considered HR as that fluffy thing that sits in the corner. But actually, you need to educate. I mean, personal brand is about advertising, about giving people your opinions, about helping them see you as you see you. Mm. So, yeah, it creates opportunities. Number one, more than anything else, it gives people confidence. If you work out what your brand is and you know what and who you're bringing to the table and you appreciate that not everybody's going to buy it and that's the key thing having the confidence to know you know I have some execs that absolutely love what I offer and I have some execs who don't but instead of focusing on the second lot and thinking what am I doing wrong just focus on the first lot and just elevate and emphasize what you're doing right that changes your mindset and you just mentioned there people not necessarily loving what it is that you do. How does kind of the concept of personal branding fit within the culture of wider organisations? So do you ever get experiences of people running into conflict when their personal brand comes up against their organisational culture? Is that is that a problem? I had a whole discussion on this once at a conference about at what point if your own personal brand and, and things particularly like your values and your drivers within your brand If that is too far away from the values and the drivers of your organisation, at what point do you walk away? Mm. That's going to be different for everybody. The person I was talking to was making their view that you should try and change the values and the drivers of the organisation, particularly if they're doing stuff that you consider morally wrong and you should be there changing it. 
My point was at some point when you bang your head against a brick wall long enough, it starts to hurt and it's yeah. best to stop it. So I, the happiest place to be is where your values and your drivers match your organisation's values and drivers. And I think it's something particularly that the new generation of people entering the workspace are putting a lot of emphasis on. Mm-hmm. Um, I read something on LinkedIn as well recently that they said, this person said that they'd um, advertised a job and they'd offered it to this young person who had actually come back and said, I've thought about it. And and your brand doesn't match my brand, so I'm not going to take it. Now, that's interesting. They were gobsmacked, but that's the way it's going. People are starting to think a bit deeper about satisfaction. Mm. So when it comes to the promotion of personal brand, what's the best way to go about that? What tools can you use? Don't do it all. Yeah. Do some of it well. But the key thing is, so I I do a lot of workshops for banks and uh, one in particular, we call it raising your profile. So these are people who work for the bank, want to raise their profile in the bank, get ahead in the bank. And they turn up and I say, why have you signed on this course? Well, my boss told me I need to raise my profile. And my next question is always, well, who with? And I go, what do you mean? Mm. Well, I just need to raise my profile. Yeah, but who with? I mean, do you need every single person in this bank to know who you are? Because if you do, just go up and punch the CEO. That'll, (laughs) That'll sort that. But actually, when you say to people, right, what is it you want to achieve? So say you're an HR person and you want, I don't know, a seat on the board or you want buy in from a particular person. You then ask yourself, well, what do I want to achieve? Who are the, I call them A-listers. Who are the Mm. A-listers in this organisation who, if they have bought into my brand, value me, can cheerlead me when they're in rooms I'm not in? Who are the people that I need to get in front of? And then you ask yourself, where do they hang out? So if they're at a conference and you could be a speaker on the stage, do that if they don't hang out there. I mean, I I don't do, I used to do Twitter. I stopped doing it. It was a waste Mm. of time. For me, for I mean, my HR and L&D people don't hang out there as much as they hang out on LinkedIn. Right. Even then, they don't hang out there loads. So sometimes I will speak at HR and L&D conferences because they will go there. I tend to personally prefer it just one-to-one. I went out to dinner last night with a client who I haven't seen for ages. It's just getting on and staying on people's radars. But this client I got from another client saying, oh, you should be speaking to, to Denise, you know. Mm. I think actually it's not about promoting your brand in the you need to be all over the place. It's the just saying to people, who do I know? Who does they know? Who would be useful to speak to? And focus it. Don't just go blah. So um, what steps could you take? if you we, We've talked about sort of individuals within organisations. If you're someone who's trying to bring this concept to your staff, if you're trying to bring it to your team, how do you do that in like a positive way? Some of it's as simple as terminology. Some people really don't like the word brand and promoting. I do work with an architecture firm with Foster and Partners. And the the woman there said to me, my contact, we mustn't use this word promote yourself because it just turns people off. Mm. So we've talked about sharing your brand with others or educating people. So some of it is terminology, just getting them to think this isn't big, scary, arrogance, bragging stuff. This is much more subtle. Some of it is getting them to realise, and I'm, I'm going to give an example. I did work years ago for Hallmark Cards, and one of the, and it's really stuck with me, one of the attendees said to me afterwards, this is the first workshop I have ever been on, and Hallmark's very good at developing people, mm. that I felt was 100% about me. She said, every other workshop, it is about me, but it's about essentially me and how I do my job better at the end of it. This whole workshop has been, who am I? What makes me tick? Why is that different? What have I got to be proud of? And she said, and I really 
as an individual, she felt they'd really invested in her, that they were willing to have her spend a whole day just thinking of her. So I think there's some of that selling it to people as this is an investment in you as an individual. We want you to know yourself. We want you to be confident. We will get a benefit out of it further down the line, absolutely. But put the focus on this isn't just a time management so you can do meetings better or an Excel course so you can do that better. It's very, very personal. I'm sure there are cynics out there who would say this all sounds like too much like hard work for me. Um, is, is, it actually, is it actually a hard thing to do, investing this, this time and energy, do you think? Or is it something that is actually just, I guess, beneficial because you do ultimately get to know yourself better? Deep down, everybody's favourite subject is themselves. I believe that. Even the people who go, oh, I'm just a shy person. Mm. We are interested in ourselves. So... You know, yes, there are cynics who go, oh, it's not worth my time. My, let's put it this way. I do a five and a half hour workshop for a bank and a guy came in a while ago and he said, Jennifer, before we start, can I just check? Is this really five and a half hours? Mm. And I went, yeah. And he went, how are we? I just said, just see. And at the end he went, where the hell did that time go? Mm. And yeah, because you get people interested in what makes them tick and realising some of the revelations. I think the number one revelation I did a workshop just yesterday that people had was people often presume they know what their skills and strengths are. This is this is my hobby horse at the moment. So when I was used to do PR, if someone had said to me, what makes you good at PR? I just said, I'm really good at communication. Well, number one, so is every flipping PR person out there. So that doesn't make you any different. And number two, someone who talks in a cohesive way. Technically, they're good at communication. Anyone can. So why am I special? So digging into, I'm not actually good at communication. That's an outcome. What I'm really good at, or what I was good at in my PR days, is always having a true story to illustrate what I'm saying. I think I've done this loads of times (laughs) on the podcast. And it's understanding at a deeper level. So that's the other thing. People think, oh, I'm coming into this workshop and she's just going to ask me to describe myself in three words. No, you don't get away with that. You then have to understand exactly what those three words are. And you need to understand what those three words bring to the table. And you need to understand how you let other people know what those three words are in a way that doesn't make you sound like an arrogant brat. Yeah, Yeah, it's hard work. But the dividends in confidence, in buy-in from others in just enjoying understanding yourself more it's worth it is there still a place somewhere for that person who quietly gets on with the job without wanting to draw any attention to themselves the second part of your question is there somewhere for the let's call them introverts for Mm -hmm. the for the sake of argument i want the introverts to try and change the balance of the extroverts who just talk a good talk but don't actually know what they're talking about getting away i get away with it i even wrote a blog post about this recently so i don't think that they can just wholly sit there and say i do a good job and i'll get ahead because i I think in many years gone by hard work got you ahead i don't think it happens now Mm. they don't have to become extroverts themselves They just have to. They've got all of this great what on offer. They just need to help a few people, their A-listers, to see it. Mm. Where where is personal brand going? I don't know. You look like a very young person. Certainly not (laughs) as old as me. But I remember a time when no one really knew what coaching was. You'd say the word coaching and some people knew, some people didn't. Now it's mainstream. Mm. Everybody knows what coaching is. I think personal brand is on the way there. 
I think even in the 10 years I've been doing this, I know that in the beginning, personal brand, what the hell? Now people are saying, oh yeah, we Googled personal brand. So I think it still has a lot to go that eventually it will just be like coaching, just part of the toolbox of what people use to develop staff. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for talking to me this morning. It's been a really good fun start to the day. So to end the show, as ever, we turn to Tim's Pointers with Tim Pointer. Please welcome our agony uncle, and agony being the operative word as it's Halloween. He's the devil it's better you know when it comes to HR. It's Tim Pointer. <laughs> You've been working on these, haven't you? I have. <laughs> I'm working on my delivery. <laughs> All right, Tim, I've got a dilemma for you. Is it uh, trick or treat? It is a trick one actually this is definitely a it's a, it's a trick that's been disguised as a treat which is all very meta so I'm, I'm gonna roll it out for you right now so i have recently started a new job and next week we are due to go on a team building away day which i thought would be a great opportunity to get to know my new colleagues but with a few days to go the team member responsible for organizing the, the activities has announced that we will be spending the afternoon working on her allotment <laughs> essentially she has roped all of her colleagues into a day of free gardening i don't feel as though i've been long enough in the job to call this out but surely this isn't normal am i allowed to say that that, that part of us has to feel slightly proud of the individual that's managed I to mean, come up with it's this. machiavellian in its nature isn't it <laughs> I quite like gardening. That sounds mm. all right to me. But if you're not a natural gardener, if you're not kind of at one with the natural world, then, you know, it's it's quite a subjective thing to do. And is the person who's uh, chosen the day, is it Jeremy Corbyn? I couldn't disclose that, could I? No, you couldn't, sorry. I wouldn't be allowed to. On the basis this is supposed to be a, a community activity, it can be seen as slightly self-serving to say, let's go to my allotment and do the weeding. There are potentially other ways of doing this. Mm-hmm. And I think so often with these one-off team builds we go about them the wrong way. Rather than actually finding out what's important to everybody in the team, we just go and find a thing to do. Let's go and paint a wall. Let's go and take some shopping trolleys out of the Manchester Ship Canal. Um, (laughs) Rather than saying, okay, guys, in terms of our work together, what are we passionate about? And you then collate all those things together. And you might find that a large number of the team have got elder care responsibilities and they're really passionate about that, or that they're really focused on education. You might be a tech company that finds huge purpose through um, introducing girls to coding, for example. And then all of your CSR work can focus around the difference that you're making within the community. Yeah. I think think that's really interesting because that actually suggests that the person organising this doesn't actually know her team members very well. So maybe there's like more of a bigger problem with this team and that they don't actually connect. So they could really use a team building day, but probably just not on her allotment. Mm. And perhaps facilitated by somebody that was actually working towards um, some some greater aim. I think it's always useful to think about um, what you're seeking to achieve and then take it up a level. If you're Mm -hmm. working on yourself, think about it at a team level because I can only develop if you help me develop. If you're working at a team level, think about what will need to be true at an organisational level to support the team to develop. There'll be tools, there'll be hierarchies that you'll need to tap into. If you're working at an organisational level, then think about society and what difference you can make to society. So for organisations, the CSR piece is a great opportunity to think at a societal level about what difference you can make as an organisation for others. So think big and then take it down. And if at an organisational level you are really focused on the physical environment that we live within, then you can partner with um, the 
uh, keep uh, Britain tidy, hashtag litter heroes, and they will then give you a litter picking kit mm. and you can go and sort out a beach or um, a wood or whatever. Um, litteraction.org.uk do a similar piece. Yeah. If you find that everyone's really focused on the pieces that an allotment can bring to you in terms of fresh fresh <laughs> food and everything else, that might be your thing. Have a team allotment. Yes. How interesting would that be? That would be, that would know, be a really good. interesting would, way of, yeah. of working together. But I get the impression that this person's been given uh, the task of finding a, a, an activity and I've gone, I can't be bothered. Uh, we'll go down my allotment. <laughs> <laughs> well, whoever you are, I hope that it's not too muddy for you um, and that it's an OK day. If you have a question for the next edition of Tim's Pointers, head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. Thanks to Nick Linford, Lady Cobham, Jennifer Holloway, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Go ahead and rate us. We would love to hear your comments. My name is Emily Burt. The producers were Matt Hill and Chica Ayres at Rethink Audio. And until next time, keep HRing.